Good morning to you all and happy Easter. What a joy it is for us to celebrate uh, Easter together, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ together. Thank you, Leong family, for leading us in a time of worship uh, through singing. And um, yeah, we're just so grateful to you for just the songs that you led us in. It, it was uh, such a blessing to to our souls as you focused our attention on the joyous hope that we have in Christ as a result of his resurrection from the dead. Indeed, he is the glorious Christ. And not only that, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Before we continue to reflect more on Jesus' resurrection this morning, let's take some time to pray to God. Our Father, what a joy it is to get together as a church family to worship you, to remember, to celebrate the glorious truths of the fact that Christ is risen from the dead, that all of our sins have been paid for because of his sacrifice for us. And because he died and because he rose again, we can be sure that all of our sins have been washed away. Wow. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We pray, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, that you would help us see just the wonders of the resurrection, the sureness of the resurrection. May you be glorified as we reflect more on the King's victory. Father, we're grateful to you for for raising Christ from the dead, and for making our way to you secure. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful gift. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the greatest wars that the world has witnessed in recent history was World War II. It stretched from 1939 to 1945, and it involved close to 70 million total soldiers and had anywhere from 40 to 50 million deaths. Now, as we look back at the carnage that occurred during the Second World War, it's any, is it any wonder that even a partial victory of the war, or end of the war, would cause celebration? On May 8th, 1945, there was a partial end to the war when... The Nazis, when Nazi Germany, unconditionally surrendered throughout Europe, thus marking the end of the conflict in Europe. Now, the war would stretch on until August 1945 when Japan surrendered, but when Nazi Germany surrendered unconditionally on May 8, 1945, the reports of their surrender sparked celebration around the world. And this day, which was initially known as V-Day, but is more correctly referred to as VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day, um, this celebration uh, it continues to be observed by countries in Europe today as they gratefully look back on the victory accomplished for them back in 1945 and how that has continually impacted their lives up until today. In a similar way to these European nations who celebrate VE Day, 
Christians continue to celebrate Easter or Resurrection Sunday, even until this day, because the victory that Christ our King accomplished for us continues to have significance in our lives and will continue to do so for all of eternity. If you were with us for our Good Friday service, you'll remember that we took a look back to the King's path to victory. Even though Jesus knew that he was doing the will of God, that doesn't mean that the path which laid ahead of him was going to be easy or pleasant. As you will know, it was neither easy nor pleasant. Yet, Jesus endured the cross, the mocking, the abandonment by God, and the humiliating death of a man, of a criminal, all because he was determined to glorify God and save His people. We concluded our message on Friday with the testimony of the centurion and his soldiers after they had witnessed all the supernatural occurrences that accompanied Jesus' death. Their conclusion? Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus' death alone was not enough to accomplish His victory over sin and death. You know that. The resurrection needed to occur if Jesus' victory was going to be complete. Because Jesus rose from, the, rose from the grave on the third day, like he said he would, we, along with Christians around the world for years to come, will celebrate. We will return to the book of Matthew this morning. And in our celebration, we're going to look at Matthew 28. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Just as we did on Friday, we will go through the sermon text in the message itself. Now, as we study the account of Christ's resurrection from Matthew's gospel, we will study three responses, three responses to Jesus' resurrection that encourages joyful celebration. Three responses to Jesus' resurrection that encourages joyful celebration. The first response to Jesus' resurrection that encourages joyful celebration is the surprise to Jesus' resurrection. The surprise to Jesus' resurrection. Or to the resurrection, excuse me. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Early on the morning of Christ's resurrection, Matthew tells us, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave of Jesus. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that these women were accompanied by other ladies, and they were not at Jesus' tomb merely to look at the grave and remember Jesus as we might do if we went to go visit the graves of our loved ones after they pass away. These women, they went to the tomb instead to anoint his body with spices according to Jewish burial customs. Perhaps these women did not know that Joseph and Nicodemus had already anointed Jesus' body with spices, as John tells us in his account. Or perhaps, out of their own love for Jesus, they wanted to bring their own contributions of spices to anoint his body. We're not told exactly why they went to anoint Jesus' body that morning, but we do know that this is the reason why they went to Jesus' grave. 
Something to keep in mind, as we already are noting the differences uh, between the uh, accounts of the, of the Gospels, is that the authors of the Gospels are writing from different perspectives. If you want to think about it from uh, the angle of a movie or a television show, what we have in these different gospel accounts from uh, these different gospel writers are different camera angles of the same event. Different camera angles of the same event. Each angle has a different purpose. It tells a different part of the story. And so with that in mind, let's keep reading verse 2. And behold... A severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came, and rolled away the stone, and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. As the women arrive at Jesus' grave, they come across the aftermath of yet another supernatural earthquake. The first earthquake occurred after Jesus' death, and it signaled the judgment and displeasure of God with the people. It also signaled his presence. However, this earthquake was a result of of an angel of the Lord coming down to earth to roll away the stone that sealed the the, the, the tomb of Jesus. The large stone that sealed the tomb of Jesus. Notice, however... Now, this angel did not come down to earth in order to release the resurrected Jesus from the tomb, as if he rose from the dead and was sitting there patiently waiting for the angel to come and let him out. He was already gone. The angel, he came down to roll the stone away, and then he came down to deliver a message to these women. The angel's presence did not go unnoticed by the soldiers who were guarding Jesus' tomb. They see this angel, they observe his blinding appearance following the earthquake, and they are left literally shaking in their boots in fear. And they are shook so hard, they fall unconscious, just as if they were dead. The women, however... Do not become like dead men when they see this angel, although they do feel some fear. And as a result of their feeling of fear, the angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. So the angel, he confirms with these women, That Jesus had died physically. That when he was crucified, Jesus did die. It wasn't just a spirit that looked like a man. Jesus actually died. But he is no longer dead. Instead, he is risen. And that phrase, he is risen, it can also be translated as he has been raised. It's passive. It signifies that Jesus, though he had the power to raise himself up from the dead, he did not raise himself up from the dead. Rather, what we see from other scriptures, Romans 6.4, Romans 8.11, among other scriptures, they tell us that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, they were the ones who raised Jesus up from the dead. And so these women, as they hear this news that Jesus has been raised from the dead, they're invited by the angel to look. They don't have to take his word for it. They can go see where Jesus had been lying. However, for whatever reason, Matthew doesn't linger too long on what they saw. Instead, he moves them on. He wants them 
to know something. He's been sent with a purpose. And perhaps Matthew, desiring to communicate some urgency, tells the woman in verse 7, Now go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The angel wants the women and the disciples to remember the words that Jesus had spoken to them before his crucifixion in Matthew 26, 32. Jesus had told them that he was going to be struck down and they will scatter. But he also says, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Since Jesus has already been raised, the disciples needed to act upon his word. There's no way that they would have known that he was risen just yet. But God uses these women as messengers to tell Jesus' disciples that it's time. It's time to remember what they had been taught and to act upon it. And so, verse 8 tells us that these women, still feeling some fear, but also filled with great joy, they, they, they go they go, they leave the cemetery to tell the disciples the good news. And lo and behold, who do they run into on their way to tell the disciples the good news? Verse 9, they run into Jesus himself. It says, Jesus met them and greeted them. And what he says is, what he, what he literally says is, greetings. Greetings. This is kind of funny if you think about it. Jesus knows that these women are both uh, are are, um, are all still a little shaken by their encounter with the angel, but they are also eager to get the news out to the disciples quickly and to ease their fears, to help evaporate their fears. He appears to them and he just says, "Hello." And it's such an understatement as a greeting, but it's so perfectly fitting. In a sense, it isn't supposed to be that big of a deal. He told all the disciples that he was going to rise from the dead, but because the Spirit did not enable them to understand what they were hearing at that time or even remember what Jesus had said until, until this point, their faith was being stretched as they were surprised to find him or to hear that he was truly resurrected. These women know upon seeing him, that this is Jesus. And so, they get on their knees and they worship him. They grab his feet. It's an appropriate, humble gesture for anyone who has encountered God the Son. If we were to encounter God the Son as we're going about our day, I don't think any of us would look him straight in the eyes and say, Hey, how you doing, Jesus? Good to see you. No. We would be stunned. We would be in awe of His majesty. We would fall to our feet. We would bow down. We would grab His feet too. This is a humble posture, recognizing His holiness, His worthiness to be worshipped. And Jesus, He reassures them. He knows that they were afraid. And so He comforts them. And then He reiterates the same command that the angel gave to them by telling them, Go and take, my, take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. There's one key difference between the angel's command and Jesus' command. He identifies his disciples as his brothers, or my brethren. 
And the word for brothers here is the common word for brothers. So I, I want to be careful in putting too much or too little emphasis on this word. Now, some scholars have suggested that by calling his disciples his brothers, uh, Jesus does not hold their failure to believe all that he said to them against them. That he is calling them his brothers to say, hey, we're okay. We're on even plane. I still love you. Don't fear. Other scholars, however, have suggested that when Jesus used this particular expression, my brothers, in the past, it was to refer to his disciples broadly. You see that in Matthew 12, 49 to 50, and Matthew 25, verse 40. And since Jesus doesn't use this phrase too often, it's not common at all, I believe it is safer to interpret my brothers, as a reference to his disciples in a broad sense, not necessarily limiting it to the eleven, but more on this later. Though Jesus' resurrection should come as no surprise to anyone, since he spoke about it on a few occasions, the fact that it was still a surprise encourages joyful celebration because it reminds us of the authenticity of this account. Yes, Jesus' disciples, including the eleven apostles, forgot what he had said to them about his resurrection. But their genuine surprise and joy at hearing that Christ has been raised from the dead reminds us that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. He actually rose from the dead. There was no plotting. There was no conspiracy to fake the resurrection. None of Jesus' disciples remembered what he had said to them previously. They were all grieved. They were all trying to make sense of the death of the one they believed to be Messiah. They, like the religious leaders, did not understand that Messiah had to suffer. That he had to die if he was going to deliver his people. They did not understand that Messiah would be resurrected. And so the, the, the surprise of these women, as we know from other accounts and the other disciples too, is evidence that Jesus truly rose from the dead. That they were not nefariously plotting to pull the wool over people's eyes. And so we rejoice with them as we are assured that the resurrection of Jesus that we've been taught since we were young or since we've been coming to church. It's not made up. It's real. It's real. And the hope that we have been forgiven of our sins remains because Christ rose from the grave. However, the surprise at Jesus' resurrection is not the only reason why we can have joyful celebration this Easter. The second response to Jesus' resurrection that encourages joyful celebration is the attempted cover-up of the resurrection. The attempted cover-up of the resurrection. Verse 11. Then, uh, oh sorry, verse 11. Um, now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. So at the same time that these women are running to tell the disciples what they had seen and heard, some of the guards who had been posted to watch over Jesus' tomb went into the city to report what had happened to the chief priests. Now the reason only a portion of the guard went and not all of the guard went to report to the chief priests what had happened um, is because these guards, they're still technically on duty. They're still technically on guard duty. And at this point, the rest of the city doesn't know that anything had happened. 
Right? So in order to keep up appearances, only a portion of the guard go to the chief priest to tell them what had happened. If the entire guard that Pilate had loaned to the chief priest had left, the people would think, uh-oh, something's up. And so, verse 12 tells us that upon hearing the report of the soldiers, the chief priests, they assembled together with the elders of Israel. And after they had consulted with one another, uh, they decided that the best course of action would be to bribe the group of soldiers with a large sum of money. The word for money here is the same word that was used to describe the 30 pieces of silver that was given to Judas. What we know is that it, that this sum of money, it wasn't just uh, large in terms of uh, in, in terms of quantity, but also of quality. It was uh, a very generous sum of money. This bribe that was given to the soldiers are accompanied with a story that the soldiers were to tell the people. It's the, uh, the religious leaders tell the soldiers in verse 13, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. This story that the soldiers are, instru- are, are instructed to tell is in and of itself utterly ridiculous. Right? Who would believe that disciplined Roman soldiers who were known to have multiple soldiers keep watch throughout the night all failed to stay awake during their guard shift? Who would believe that the disciples would be gutsy enough to wait for these soldiers to fall asleep and make a lot of noise moving that large stone out of the way to steal the body of Jesus. When, if they were caught, they would have been killed almost immediately. These are common men. Men who have no combat experience. Right When Peter was trying to uh, go after the high priest's uh, servant, he aimed for the head, but he only got the ear. Right? These, these men would not have lasted against these soldiers. That's utterly ridiculous. And, and, and the ridiculousness of this story is, is even more unlikely when you consider the fact that the penalty for a Roman soldier who fell asleep while on guard duty was death. If these soldiers went around telling people that they fell asleep and that the disciples came and stole Jesus' body when they were asleep, they were basically committing themselves to suicide. And yet, and yet, the considerable amount of money that the soldiers were paid was enough to convince them to agree to this lie that the religious leaders had concocted. But this arrangement with the religious leaders was not only attractive because of the considerable amount of money they were uh, being offered, but it was also attractive because of the protection that the religious leaders offered them. Verse 14. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. As someone once said, what good is all this money if you aren't around to use it? The soldiers would not have accepted this bribe as large as it was if they knew that they could still uh, face Pilate's wrath and their own execution as a result of their failure. Apparently, the religious leaders had leverage over Pilate and the soldiers knew it. Some have suggested that the religious leaders um, had a threat that they could leverage over Pilate. Perhaps a complaint to Caesar over Pilate's conduct. Or maybe they had other dirt 
on Pilate that they could give to Caesar. Others have suggested that they would just pay Pilate off. They obviously had the money to do it, so they could have silenced Pilate that way as well. Regardless of which method the religious leaders used, they believed that they had the ability to control the narrative of what happened to Jesus' body. So they did all they could uh, in, in their power, and, and they advanced this lie. In verse 15, we see that the soldiers took the money and did as they had been instructed. Or that word instructed. What an irony. What an irony that this word instructed is being used here. It's the word didasco. It's the word that we usually use to, uh, to talk about teaching God's word. The irony in this statement is so sad. The religious leaders of Israel, the teachers of Israel, were supposed to instruct people in God's word. In God's word. They were supposed to teach people what is right before God. Instead, instead what we see here is that they are teaching the Roman, Roman soldiers that they loved power more than they loved God. That they loved lies and deception more than they valued righteousness and integrity. Not only that, but they demonstrated that they loved themselves more than they loved God. Because they were willing, they were willing to deceive His people with this false narrative rather than to stop and consider, based off of everything that had happened, whether Jesus was truly the Son of God. And their efforts to deceive the people was somewhat successful, as Matthew tells us that the, that the rumors that the disciples stole Jesus' body continued to circulate among the Jews to the time when he wrote his gospel. Estimates for the date of the compos- composition of Matthew's gospel range from early 50s AD to 60s AD. And this means that for at least 20 to 30 years, this lie was perpetuated among the Jewish community by the time that Matthew wrote his gospel. Of course, we still hear people object to the reality of the resurrection by suggesting that the disciples stole the body today. So this wicked lie actually continues to pay pay dividends. Despite how disheartening it is to hear that the lies of the righteous leaders were successful, Christians can still be encouraged to respond with joyful celebration to this cover-up. Why? Because even though, even though the religious leaders were somewhat successful in spreading their lies about what happened to Jesus' body, obviously they weren't completely successful. The good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected still successfully went out to not just Jerusalem, not just to Judea, but it went out to the entire world. The entire world would hear the good news of the gospel. They would hear how Jesus traded his sinless life for our sinful one. They will hear how he died unrighteously. The hands, uh, how he would die at the hands of unrighteous men, excuse me. And how he would rise again three days later. They would hear the good news of the gospel. And if the religious leaders of Israel were able to stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would have proved that the gospel has no power or authority to make an impact on Israel, no less the world. But, 
They were unable to stop the spread of the gospel. They couldn't stop it. We'll see that later on in church history. They did everything that they possibly could to tamp down the gospel, to snuff it out, and they were unsuccessful. Time and time again, God allows his gospel to go forth. And that proves that the power of the gospel message truly has authority. That God is behind biblical Christianity because he is pleased with his son. The gospel cannot be stopped, but it will continue to press on to all the corners of the earth until Christ returns. And that means, this means, that no matter what happens next in our lifetime, whether we are able to meet in large gatherings in the same way we used to, or if we have to alter the way that we meet together as the body of Christ, we can trust That the Lord will continue to cause the good news of Christ's death on the cross for sins and subsequent resurrection to go forth. People will hear of the life-changing power of the gospel. And like Jesus said, he will build his church. We, therefore, ought to continue to pray that God will do His will and will continue to save others. And that leads us to the third response to Jesus' resurrection that encourages joyful celebration, and that is the proclamation of the resurrection. The proclamation of the resurrection. Verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. In contrast to the actions of the soldiers and the religious leaders, the disciples proceeded to the mountain in Galilee, which Jesus had previously designated in Matthew 26.32. We are not told exactly where the disciples are to meet Jesus in Galilee, but a return from Galilee, uh, or to Galilee from Jerusalem, would have taken about a week. Now, through a study of the life of Christ uh, from the different gospel accounts, Um, we call that the harmony of the gospel, we can determine that in between his resurrection and appearance to the women near his grave, Jesus also appeared to many others. Acts 1-3 confirms this, teaching us that Jesus was very busy following his resurrection. He appeared to the apostles and other saints over a period of 40 days. And during this time, he was presenting himself alive to them with many convincing proofs, and he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And so, by the time the eleven get to Galilee, it's very close to the end of those 40 days, they had seen enough convincing proofs of Jesus' resurrection, where they should have had no doubts about the veracity of his resurrection. Even Thomas, famously known for his doubts, was convinced of Jesus' resurrection just in one instance. Just in one instance before they arrived in Galilee. So that makes it very curious when we read verse 17 and we're told that when the eleven saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. This word doubtful is not necessarily the best translation of the word, as a better word would be hesitated. So uh, we could rephrase this as saying when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were hesitant, or some hesitated, excuse me. Or the reason for their hesitation is not given But it could be that they were unsure whether this was actually Jesus or if this was perhaps an imposter. 
Now, while the eleven are specifically mentioned here as the disciples who traveled to Galilee, many scholars agree that the mention of the eleven disciples pre, uh, specifically does not does not exclude the presence of other disciples with them. Jesus' earlier reference to his brothers in his conversation with the women in verse 10 of, of Matthew 28 certainly refers to the 11, but it could have also referred to any number of the 500 believers that Jesus appeared to, as Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 15.6. That some of these other brothers, some of these 500 would, would be included among the brothers, uh, would make sense, right? And if they were the if they were the ones who were hesitating to immediately worship Jesus, that's entirely reasonable. However, we do know from Mark's account that Jesus rebuked some of the eleven for the hardness of their heart and their hesitation. So they're not completely out of the picture here either. Now, whether you personally choose to interpret those who hesitated as some within the 11, or if you have the larger group in view too, the fact of the matter is that some of Jesus' disciples hesitated to worship him. But they all eventually were convinced that this was Jesus, and they worshipped him. Now, after the disciples worshipped Jesus, he spoke to them in the words that we are very familiar with in verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Normally, when we hear verses 18 to 20 taught or preached, it's in reference to how we are to participate in gospel missions, right? why we ought to participate in gospel missions. And that is certainly a valid application, but what we see here in the entire context of Matthew 28 is what we call the Great Commission is given to Jesus' disciples in response to Christ's victory. They are to proclaim his victory to others. Just as an army would have sent news ahead to their home uh, that they have succeeded in, in the war that they waged so that when they return, the nation would welcome them home and rejoice with them. So Jesus sends his disciples throughout the world to proclaim his victory so that people will be ready to receive the king when he returns. It's for this reason that Jesus tells his disciples that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. You see, when Jesus became a man, he did not cease being God. However, he did give up certain aspects of how he would exercise his authority as a man. So he still had God's authority, but he was a man, so he limited the way that he could use his divine authority. But now... Now that he is in his resurrected body, God has expanded the sphere of Jesus' authority back to what it was like before Jesus became a man. All authority has been given to him. It is on the basis of this authority that Jesus tells his disciples that they are to make disciples. As many of you have heard in studying this passage, the main verb uh, here in Jesus' commission of the disciples is not go. 
The main verb here is not go. The main verb, the main command here in this sentence is make disciples. So the verbs go, baptizing, and teaching, they're all verbs that describe what Christians are to be doing while they are making disciples. So those who are making disciples, they are not to wait in their homes for opportunities to make disciples of Christ, but are to be making disciples as they are going out. Now, we could make the case now with our technology uh, that leaving our front doors is no longer necessary to spread the gospel. However, Jesus' command remains as it is. We are all still commanded to make disciples by going into the world. As we're going about, we are to be making disciples. Technology doesn't change that. And I'm not saying... I'm not saying that you need to violate the shelter-in-place order right now or you'll be guilty of not sharing the gospel. I'm not saying that. Okay? I'm not saying that you're not faithful by staying home. You are. You're honoring authority. All right, we can resume this uh, outside, in-person, gospel-sharing ministry when it is safe to do so. But what this text is saying is that as we're going about our lives... We are to make the most of the opportunities to share the gospel with others in the hopes that they too will become disciples of Jesus Christ. So that means no matter what you do, whether you're working, working from home, or just catching up with old friends, all of those, all, all of those are opportunities for us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Not only are those who are making disciples to go out into the world, but they are also to be baptizing new disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism that symbolized repentance. It symbolized the turning away from sin and a turning towards God. But the baptism of Jesus it established, uh, that, that Jesus establishes here is one of identification, is a baptism of identification with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. By choosing to publicly identify oneself with God in the public sharing of the testimony of being immersed in the water and, and identifying with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, those who are, are being baptized are demonstrating that they've turned away from their sins, that they've placed their faith in Christ, and, and they're demonstrating that unity that they have with Him as a result. And so that's why baptism is so important. We're, we're going to have to put baptism on hold until we can all gather again safely, but eventually, when we are able to, we will, be, we will resume baptizing again. And, and finally, those who are making disciples are to teach others all that Christ has commanded Right, All that Christ has commanded. Not just some of it, not just a part of it, but all that Christ has commanded. Yes, preaching the gospel to others so that they will hear uh, the good news of Jesus Christ and believe in Him is important. It's absolutely important. It's absolutely essential. But equally important is following up with those who leave their sins behind and teaching them all that Christ has commanded. And that means that as Christians, we ought to strive to learn as much about God's Word as we can. And not just for our own personal growth in holiness, but also 
so that we can help others grow to be like Jesus. The Christian life was never meant to be about how much you can personally benefit from salvation and a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not about you and your salvation. There is an expectation from Jesus himself that his people are to be concerned for one another. Right? This, is how you know, this is how people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Right? So we're supposed to have our minds on other people. We're supposed to want to help them grow to be like him so that the world can see in the way that we love one another, in the way that we help each other change, that the gospel has power to change lives. And this is why we are to teach one another all that Christ has commanded, because we want people to see that the gospel does make a difference. I'm not stuck in my sins, and neither, neither are my brothers, neither are my sisters. We are all free from sin. And even though we might mess up, we can, because of the grace given to us, repent and return to the Lord and to act in a way that is different, all because of the power of the gospel. What we're talking about here is not just witness in what we proclaim, but witness in how we live our lives. So after Jesus gives these marching orders to his disciples to proclaim his victory around the world, he gets them ready to go. And he provides them with a word of comfort when he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The word lo is the same word for behold. And in fact, some of your translations will, instead of love lo, say behold. And it's meant to draw a person's attention to something important. Even though Jesus is sending his disciples out to proclaim his victory, they don't go out alone. They don't go out alone. Right? When you and I go out, we don't go out alone. Jesus Himself. Jesus Himself will be with them, will be with us. He, he actually emphasizes that when he, says, I, um, when he says, I am with you always. I myself, it could, uh, it could be translated, I myself am with you always. What a, what a great comfort. What a great assurance. That when we go out, when we represent Christ, when we act as witnesses to the world, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the resurrected, eternal Son of God will be with us always. Wow. Wow. That is so amazing. He will always be with us. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those who have Christ will not experience hardship in their lives. Right? That's evident with the trials that we're facing today. But what it does mean is that through the trials, we know, we know that we're not alone. We're not alone. We can have confidence that though what we face might be difficult right now, that they are momentary afflictions in the grand scheme of things, that they are in fact light because of the treasure of Christ that we receive in the end. Yes. Yes, we will have our hurts. We will suffer loss. But Christ, Christ, our great reward and our greatest gain awaits. 
It's for this reason we can confidently join in with the saints of old in the ministry of proclaiming our King's victory this morning and continue to do so until our victory march, our part in this victory march is done. And we get to enter into the joy of our King. Easter Sunday is a day of celebration for good reason. It's the day that we remember particularly the resurrection of our Lord and the sealing of His victory over sin and death. It is because He lives that you and I can have confidence that the sins which once made us enemies of God are completely wiped away and completely forgiven. It's because Christ lives that we who were once in danger of facing the wrath of God for our sins can now call him Abba, Father. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And because we know that He holds the future, life is worth living just because He lives. We wait for our King to return to bring us home. We wait for Him to establish His kingdom. But until then, we have work to do, brothers and sisters. We must let the world know what Jesus has done so that others may hear the gospel and be saved. And this morning, this morning, we looked at three responses to the resurrection that encourages us to have joyful celebration. We saw essentially three proofs of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. As we saw the surprise to the resurrection, we saw the attempted cover-up to the resurrection, and we saw the proclamation of the resurrection. These things demonstrate that nobody made this up, that God truly did send His Son to pay our ransom and to take our place so that we might be His people. And so for Christians, this, this is our reason to celebrate, to celebrate joyfully this Easter, even if we're not together physically. For those of you who are here with us this morning and you are not a Christian, this doesn't mean that you have to be left out of the celebration. God does not want you to be left out of the celebration. He welcomes you to celebrate with us. Christ has paid the price for you. He has initiated the trade of your sin for His righteousness so that when you lay down your sin and when you believe upon Christ this day, you can have assurance. You can have confidence. You can have Joy, because you will know that Christ will be with you always. That you will no longer be an enemy of God, but you will instead be welcomed in as a child of God. That is the joy, that is the good news that awaits you. Will you receive this gift from God today? Will you believe today and join us in our celebration? Let's pray. Our Father, as we reflect upon the resurrection, we cannot help but respond with great thankfulness and with great joy. Yes, Easter 
is a celebration that is meant to draw our families together, but it is even more so a celebration that is meant to cause us to rejoice and proclaim to the world that you won. And so, Father, we pray that you would encourage us this morning to always live in light of the resurrection. And to be so thankful and to be so joyful that we cannot help but tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray that you be with those who do not know you this morning. And that you would help them to see the truth of everything that we've just studied this morning. Help them to see that Jesus Christ truly did come down to this earth. As a man, to die for sin, and that when he truly did rise from the grave, he thus defeated the power of sin and death. We pray that you would convict, that you would help people realize that they are in trouble. They are in trouble with you because of their sin, that they do face your wrath because of their sin, but the good news of the gospel offers them a way out of that wrath. It offers them peace. We pray desperately, urgently, on behalf of those who are here with us this morning, who do not know you, that that you would help them see their need for peace, for forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to see these truths and to respond in gratefulness and, and love to you. Father, we pray that you be with us this week, that you help us to, uh, to continue to be good witnesses of the gospel truths and, and that we would, even though it might be difficult, be ambassadors of Christ to our world. Thank you, Father, for this uh, time for celebration. This in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for our Easter Sunday service. Uh, we are, we're glad that uh, we can still continue to meet together and celebrate together, uh, even though we are all separated. So, um, yeah, God bless you. Have a blessed week. We will hope to see you later on this week or even next Sunday. God bless. You're dismissed.